Open your Bibles once again, please, to Philippians chapter 3, and notice again verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not irksome, but for you, it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision, worshiped by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Title of this sermon as we, sometimes in the afternoon as we continue a series in the book of Philippians, title of this one is The Roots of Joy. Martin Luther once wrote, our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf of springtime. Dead branches come to life with the putting forth of new leaves and the opening of blossoms. Spring isn't quite here as of yet, though I suspect we anticipate with a great deal of joy that it will arrive uh, soon enough. But Luther was right in the sense that in the spring, plants and trees spring into life. There is the appearance of death and then the appearance of life. Spring is a season of hope and renewal. But what is the source of that life? What does that tree or, or why does that tree or flower spring into life? And may we think of uh, perhaps all kinds of reasons in terms of um, the amount of light uh, or heat or whatever, but the real answer or the great answer or the important answer is that life is found in the roots. A tree may look dead, a plant may look dead, but a good root system will revive the tree or the plant Good root system is necessary to the, tri- the, to the thriving of any plant. Sever the tree from its roots and it dies. Restrict the root system by too much digging around it and the plant will be affected. So it is, Paul says, with the matter of joy. Paul speaks of joy frequently in this epistle. Some have even called it the epistle of joy. He has mentioned joy four times in chapter one and as well four times in chapter two and now again here in chapter three and verse one. And he's speaking, he has spoken of his joy, their joy, combined joy, but now he has adds something somewhat new. There is a new element introduced here, and it is this phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. 
And he says, finally, my brethren. Now, when we see this word finally in the New Testament, we must not necessarily necessarily conclude that Paul is winding up something. Uh, To consider the word defined that way might affect our view of inspiration. Paul is about to say, well, this is the last thing I have to say. And then he starts up again and writes something else. But that's not the... That's not the the meaning of this particular word as it is often used. It really is, uh, can be translated and ought to here at least, something along the lines of furthermore or additionally. Literally, it's for the rest. And Paul says here, Additionally, is a key element of joy. In fact, here is the true basis of Christian joy. Here is the root, the root system, if you will. It is a rejoicing in the Lord. Joy in His fellowship. Joy in view of His love and grace. Joy in the knowledge of his rule over our lives. Indeed, in all of the experiences of life. One further word, and that is that when we think of joy, we might wrongly think of happiness. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is dependent upon Christ. Remove the pleasant circumstances and happiness may well disappear. But there is no removing Christ from us in any sense. Paul says further as he develops this in these opening words that here is the common property of all believers. Every believer may experience joy. Every Believer may and can have joy. Joy in the Lord. We often think of people with varying personalities, and rightly so. There are some people that are just sort of seem like they're happier uh, all the time. I remember when I was uh, first became a Christian, and I may have used this illustration, but uh, a very good friend of mine, his father was probably the happiest man I've ever met in my life. I don't care what was going on in his life and his family uh, or in the life of the church or anything else, but he always had this huge smile. And uh, he worked for a car agency, so that was probably a good thing for the, the car agency. Um, but in any event, uh, his personality was like that. Um, I've had relatives and friends whose personality was the exact opposite of that, and it was pretty tough to get them to smile or to laugh. But again, it was their personality. And then in addition to that, we think of 
these things in terms of experience. But Paul is saying, here's the common property of everyone, regardless of circumstances. It's the common property of all believers, regardless of temperament and regardless of personality. Here are the roots of joy then, just as a plant flourishes with a good root system and just as a tree does as well. I think there are three that are introduced here in the context. First of all, to have this joy, to be able to rejoice in the Lord, we need to retain a biblical view of God's grace. That's where joy is to be found. Paul is telling us here that there is a special people entitled to joy. He calls them brethren. And they are entitled to rejoice in the Lord. There is a special covenant people of God. God entered into a special pledged and defined relationship with them. And because of the mention of circumcision, he may well have Abraham in mind. God chose Abraham, called him, and blessed him. He, he made promises to him, the greatest of which was that he would be his God. That is, God would be Abraham's God. He pledged himself to Abraham and to his descendants, and the sign of that under the old covenant was circumcision. And we discover that in Genesis chapter 17. The sign was circumcision. It was the mark of a special relationship to God, which is why Paul introduces it here in this text. Those who possess the faith of Abraham become the true covenant people of God. And Paul says as much, not only in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, but also Romans chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. The people of God, the brethren, as it were, possess God's promise. The church possesses God's promise. Paul claims for himself and the Philippians the privileges of being the undoubted heirs of all the rights and privileges of the people of God. In Galatians chapter 6, he speaks of peace upon all the Israel of God, and I take that to mean both Jew and Gentile. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter uses language that flows out of the Old Testament, language that has to do with nation and people and temple, and that God is building something now in this new covenant age as well. What God promises to, promised to Abraham and to Israel in a series of progressive covenants 
belongs to the church. Presence of God. The blessing of sins forgiven, pardon. Hope of a glorious future. All of these things become the common property of the people of God. We rejoice in the Lord because of these many blessings. The church's stability depends upon the retention of these things and the memory of these things. And Paul says that the repetition of these truths are not irksome to him. In other words, doesn't trouble him. It doesn't bother him to be repetitious. They're not irksome for Paul to mention them again and again and again and again. And for them, it is safe. So maybe there's something to be said for an occasional repetition of a sermon, um, whatever that may mean to us today after this morning. But at any rate, um, it's not irksome. It's, it's not a problem for Paul. And it is to their benefit. The blessings of salvation in Christ are the source of joy and stability. Why wouldn't we not, to, would we not want to hear about them? We don't need new messages, new ideas, new notions. One of Hot Neal's um, frequent comments, and he's taking courses from IRBS, and he said to me, he says, you know, and he's not being critical of IRBS, but he says, you know, you know what I've discovered? And I said, what's that? He said, well, young professors wanting to earn a PhD, oh, it seems like they always have to try to find something new to say. He said, yeah, that's, that's pretty, much, pretty much how it goes. We don't need something new to say or to believe. We have everything necessary here. And so repetition of those truths is necessary for you. It's good for you to hear the same truths even if the sermons are new and the texts are familiar. How often have um, you probably heard Pastor Stephan to say that you know, Christians need to hear the gospel too. And he's right. And Christians need to see the gospel, which is why the Lord's Supper is to be observed, according to Paul, frequently. Paul is saying here, be sure of who you are. If you want to rejoice, remember rejoicing is in the Lord and therefore you must be in the Lord. A knowledge of your position is the first root, if you will, of these roots of joy and is what is absolutely, necessarily essential. And so Paul says, if you want to rejoice... Rejoice in the Lord and retain a um, perspective 
retain a biblical view of God's grace toward you. So retain that, hold on to it, remember it, and be delighted when that is rehearsed. The second root, if you will, or part of that root system that Paul mentions is the following. Retain and now disclaim. Disclaim every false view of joy. And we see that in in verse two. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision. Repudiate and deny the validity of every other claim to joy. Now, Paul has one particular group in mind, and he draws attention to them with an alliteration that you can't see um, in our English translations. But he uses the equivalent of the Greek K three times, though with the same definite article each times, each time. And he has the Judaizers in mind, those or even the Jews perhaps, who had a faulty view of the place of circumcision. And he uses three terms to describe them. Dogs, evil workers, and those of what he calls the concision. So I think that there, for us, in practical terms, there are three things to avoid. Three things then to disclaim as avenues that would bring delight and joy. The first is elitism. The Jews and the Judaizers after them saw themselves as superior to everyone else. They looked down on the Gentiles and at one point even excluded them from the kingdom of Christ if they had not been circumcised. They referred to Gentiles as dogs, which is the reference and the reason that dogs is used here in the context. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs and not the nice little soft fluffy pet that you'd have at home, but the wild dogs that ran the streets um, in my frequent trips to Cuba. There's hardly a day or an hour goes by that I don't see some wild dog running down the street. Uh, there's no leash law there, and uh, you don't have to pick up after your dog or anything like that at all. Dogs just run wild. You may remember that son Eric was bitten by four dogs um, when he was um, in Cuba with me and uh, something that uh, he remembered to the very end of, end of his days. But they referred to them as 
dogs, wild, dirty, undisciplined, ferocious animals roaming in packs. The point here is that they compared themselves to others. They had a faulty view of the grace of God. They compared themselves with others and concluded that they were superior, in this case to the Gentiles, but to superior to everyone else. They were God's favorites. A proper view of ourselves must never be based on that perspective. And if we do, joy will always be elusive. One of the ways this works itself out is that the more we know or think we know, the more superior we may feel to others. And I think it it happens and occurs here in our own country, but it's very evident at the moment uh, where I travel the most. There are those who once worked together and cooperated together and were establishing churches together, and then something happened so that one or two of them, and it's not Hot Neil, but it's the other side, decided that they were more reformed than the others. And it produced a split which has lasted to this day. Thankfully, it seems as if some of that's being repaired. But that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, a a sense of superiority over whatever. It might be knowledge. uh, It might be experience. It might be some perspective that we have that others don't have. And it makes us feel as if we are superior to them rather than if we really do have something they don't, to be thankful and to be humble before God. So elitism is a very real problem and it needs to be disclaimed and it needs to be rejected for whatever reasons we conclude that we are superior. And then there's the problem of legalism. Paul refers to them as evil workers, not because their works were morally sinful, but because their reliance on works was harmful. Their reliance was not helpful, but it was harmful. It appears as if because of their view of circumcision, that they relied on their works to secure God's favor. I'm circumcised, therefore, I'm superior, elitism, or I'm circumcised, therefore, that produces some favor before God. The problem, how do you know that that particular work that you favor is also favored by God? And how do you know if you've done enough of it, whatever that might be? That's the problem 
with legalism. It is contrary, it's really a biblical view of law, but it's also contrary to the gospel. And Paul goes on to speak more of this in verses 4 and following. And then there's the problem of formalism. So elitism, legalism, using the law in a way that it was never intended to be used. And then formalism. Now Paul here uses a literary device known as paranomasia, which is a clever play on words where two words sound similar, said in opposition to each other, but they mean something different. The word circumcision, the Greek word is peritome, and it's found here. We are the circumcision. But he uses another word, concision, which means literally mutilators of the flesh. Now remember that circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh. And it was the mark that God had given to Israel for males to be identified as members of the covenant. And so Paul says of them that your practice is really not circumcision, cutting away of the flesh for the right reason, but it's a cutting away of the flesh and it's really mutilation. It's not what God intended. The word is for circumcision, again, is peritome. The word for concision is katatome. So they sound similar, but they have different meanings. The point that Paul is making here is that many of those who believed they were members of the covenant because they had been circumcised, they lost sight of the symbolic, uh, symbolic perspective or nature of circumcision, and it was made a thing of value in and of itself. But it had no meaning apart from the meaning that God had given to it, which was symbolic. Paul says as much in passages like Romans 2, 28 and 29, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. There were those going through the motions, adopting the form for, for its own sake. And to do so meant that it had no lasting value. Whatever is done 
must be done with regard to the meaning that God had invested that, in this case circumcision, or it will have no lasting good, must be done from the heart. Beware, or pay attention, rather not beware, but be sure of what it is you believe and believe it for the right reason. So a reception of the truth is the first root. A rejection of all that is false is the second root and is essential. So retain, disclaim, and then thirdly in verse three, entertain. Entertain a proper view of Christian experience. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now the first thing under this heading that Paul says is depend upon the work of the Spirit. Now some have concluded that what Paul has in mind here is to make sure that your um, belief and your reception is spiritual. Others, as have I have adopted, that what is in view here is the Spirit of God who brings about that reality of a spiritual reception and entertaining of the truth. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth may have the same emphasis, John chapter four. It is the Holy Spirit who brings about the works that we must depend upon. It is he who quickens, who prompts, and who controls the life of the Christian. That we are to worship, and the word worship here is latruo. The word from the Old Testament, which was the combined meaning of worship and serve. Worship and service are not essentially outward, but inward and produced by the Spirit of God. To go back to the concept of circumcision, true circumcision is a matter of the heart. Colossians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 5. The Spirit of God is the divine enabler who powerfully transforms the life and brings to pass the worship and service of the believer from the heart, from the very position of the inner man. The Spirit produces a spiritual response. Depend upon the work of the Spirit. Secondly, devote yourself entirely to Jesus Christ. A proper view of Christian experience 
includes dependence upon the Spirit and devotion to Jesus Christ. True Christian experience includes a delight, a satisfaction, a confidence, and an allegiance to Jesus Christ and to no other. To the believer, Christ is everything, and to remember that Christ is everything will produce this joy that Paul talks about. Depend upon the work of the Spirit. Devote yourself entirely to Jesus Christ. And thirdly, distrust yourself completely. Paul says, thirdly here, and have no confidence in the flesh. Flesh can mean one of two things, or does mean one of two things in the scriptures. It can mean physical flesh, human nature, or sinful human nature. And probably what is in view here in the context is that man at his best striving to please God, it will end in failure. It will inevitably be fleshly. Paul says you are unable, you are weak, you are capable of the most depraved behavior, self-reliance, is foolish and will not accomplish what God intends for you. Be sure of your experience that it is not fleshly, that it is not carnal, but rather spiritual because produced by the Spirit of God. A valid experience then of the grace of God, a valued, or a valid, excuse me, experience of the grace of God is the third root and is essential. Retain, disclaim, and entertain. Here are the roots of joy. Reduced to a sentence, the root of joy is true religion. True saving faith, expressing itself in confidence in a covenant-keeping God is the source of joy. The roots of joy include a thoroughgoing knowledge of your position, a rejection of all false views of joy that would be rooted in what you do natively or naturally, and vital Christian experience produced by the Spirit of God. This is the old path. It's not common today with all of the new ways of finding allegedly finding spiritual life. 
But there is no new way to experience joy. And in fact, all of them will fail eventually. And sadly, far too many who embrace these new ways soon discover that they don't work and they abandon their church or churches. And it's almost impossible to get them to come back with the truth. Here is a joy that remains regardless of what it is that we face as a part of the experiences of life. All of the disappointments and the disasters, the trials and the difficulties, and we face them. And uh, we don't have to deny them. In fact, we ought not to deny them and live in a fool's paradise. But here is a joy that remains regardless of all of that. Nothing can intrude in such a way as to destroy that which you have in Jesus Christ. So retain, disclaim, and entertain, and you will find joy. Now notice finally, by way of the final concluding comment, that this joy is set in the imperative mood. You notice that? Finally, my brethren, rejoice. That's a command. Doesn't just fall out of the sky. It is something for you to obey. In other words, Paul is saying you are personally responsible for this joy in the Lord. It's not superficial, slap happy uh, kind of a thing, but rather it's an embracing of the principles of these three verses. No one else can provide this. No other set of circumstances will provide them, and no other experience will provide them either. But this is, or these are, the roots of true Christian joy. Let us pray.